Podcast One production. The Health Hacker with Adam McDougall. On this episode of Health Hacker, Adam is chatting to a man referred to as the Gordon Ramsay of the fitness world. The reason being is he gets straight to the point, doesn't hold any punches and tells you what he thinks, not just about your diet or your fitness advice, but about health and fitness in general. And that's why we thought, God, we got to get this guy on. That's what this podcast is about, cutting straight to the truth with no BS. James Smith came to Australia. He's written a couple books, one called Not a Diet Book, another one called Not a Life Coach. And that's why we wanted to get him on, to hear about his journey, what's in these books, and what we can learn from him. So remember, if you want us to hack into someone in particular like James Smith, email us, healthhacker at themanshake.com.au, Adam's Manshake Socials, or at the website, themanshake.com.au. Adam's always giving away prize packs as well. So jump online and check it out and get in touch with the show. We'd love to give you content that you want to hear. So here's that chat with James Smith and Adam McDougall. Okay, James, um... I must admit, I didn't realise um, when I first spoke to you that you were actually based in Australia, mate. How did you land here in this great country? Uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, I came here backpacking about four years ago. I'd been in personal training and I was a little bit bored in the gym I was in. And for me to grow, it meant moving into a city. I knew that I had to be a trainer in a city and I had the choice of London or somewhere else. And I'd never been to Australia. And I've always seen Australia as like the capital of the fitness industry. So... I flew one way to Sydney and was like many ponds that stepped foot on Bondi Beach and I'm still here. Well, the great thing about yourself is is that you've really just been thrust into the world of uh, fitness stardom, for want of a better word, through your book, uh, Not a Diet Book. Um, and you're really fired up and you're passionate and you call it how you see it. Uh, you know, you, you just said that, uh, to be honest, you don't need to be honest because you are, just are honest and that's what makes you so synonymous in this industry. Um, what fired you up about fitness in general? How did this path of, I suppose, uh, being fired up start for you, particularly directed at the fitness industry? I'm sure uh, everyone has this little journey they go on where they discover so many things about fitness, supplements and weight loss and they realise a lot of their prior knowledge was incorrect and... It's not always incorrect because people just don't know. You've been led down sometimes malicious paths. And I'd done the hit workouts at home. I did the insanity workout. I jumped around my front room like a flipping idiot. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't lose weight. And it was because no one had really, you know, got in my life and told me about energy balance. No one had told me about all I was doing was expending calories, you know. And for years, I thought I just needed to eat cleaner which still to this day doesn't actually have like a definition. And I realized I'd just gone down people's uh, little pathways, their little narratives that led me down. And I was quite pissed off when I realized how simple it was come the other side. And you do develop a chip on your shoulder uh, as you start to, to realize how to do it. And I'm kind of a bit bummed. I wasted so many years of my life. And I suppose now I've become the persona who I would have needed in my life at an earlier stage. What allows somebody like yourself to step out and have the courage to say, you know, I'm not just pissed off about this personally, but I'm willing now to voice that on a wider audience? Well, when I started on social media, which was about seven years ago, um, it took me two years to get 2,000 followers. In my second year, I got 1,200. And I was like, I'm really getting traction now. I thought when I had 2,000, I was big time. Um, At the time, I've, I've always had this business model in my head that I only need 10 clients. Once you have 10 clients and they see you three times a week, you're doing 30 sessions. So once I had that, when I was putting out content, I didn't really care. I was like, I've got this. I want to say this about skinny tea. I want to say this about the aloe vera cleanse. I threw it out there. And I was like, I've got my 10 clients. And if I lose one, 
I'll get on the gym floor and I'll find another. And it kind of gives you this like robust mentality where people go, oh, but James, what if you get a lot of criticism? I was like, I'll be fine. What if you lose some followers? I'll still be fine. I only need 10 clients to do well. It's an interesting combination. I often say that social media gives people a voice that don't deserve one. And it also gives people legitimacy that don't deserve legitimacy. So, for example, you know, a Hollywood actor, for example, may have, you know, billions of followers in Bangladesh and God knows how many fake followers, but all of a sudden they then become recognised as a health expert when they're an actor. So is that something that you're passionate about as well, trying to bring some legitimacy to people that are legitimate? Yeah, there's there's certainly uh, an amount of gravitas that's given to people through status and because you did a season on Big Brother or The Bachelorette it doesn't mean you know shit about you know helping helping people and a, a lot of people through you know posting certain food recipes or whatever get themselves to a certain status where they're proclaimed to be a, an expert I spent about 5,000 hours on the floor with people so when someone's squat doesn't work I'm like hey I know what's up here or if someone's like struggling with a movement in the gym or you know, uh, something's not working. I was like, I've had this conversation 30 or 40 times and all I do on social media is voice the conversations I've had a hundred times over. And you can spot someone when then they're a coach that's never done coaching. And I, you know what? I, I love Chris Hemsworth, right? Because he is a dreamy bloke. He is a dreamy, dreamy bloke. But when he released his fitness app, I was like, listen, you dreamy, you dreamy bloke. Stop, stop stepping into my lane. I'm struggling over here to keep business going. Just because you're a dreamy Thor-looking bad man in Byron Bay doing all the bicep curls, you've never PT'd anyone, Chris. You know, you and your brother with godlike genetics, get out of here. And um, yeah, it, it is one of those things where, you know, you, you're saying to him, don't step into the fitness lane. Unfortunately, popularity pushes products. And it's interesting you say about that as well. The, the reality of what reality is for most people is there's a huge disconnect with a lot of these celebrities as well in the sense that, I've got to spend some time with some, you know, different uh, celebrities for want of a better word or wannabe movie stars. And uh, they have personal chefs, they've got personal trainers that, you know, the list goes on and on. They don't have screaming kids. They don't have money problems. They don't have the the, the same 24 hours that um, most normal people have. So for them to look through that lens and tell people how to get fit, it's pretty hard for most people to relate to, isn't it? Yeah. And, and even like cooking meals from scratch, you know, does cooking every meal help your progress? Yeah. But if you want to have a sandwich for lunch, you can make it work. And going to the gym every day, yeah. But getting sleep every night, yeah. But then if you haven't had kids, you, you bring into the world a couple of these little monsters that steal your sleep. They steal, your, steal all your time. You know, they, and, and people are like, oh, yeah, you know, you didn't hit your five workouts. You're not, you don't want it enough. And yeah, I think there's definitely a lack of empathy in the world. I agree. I agree 100%. And that's the irony about yourself is the fact that people that just want to hate for the sake of hating, that's where they'll try and attack yourself, isn't it? They'll sort of say, oh, you know, you're trying to fat shame, but you're not. It's, it's also just like a, an, an approach that I enjoy. I played rugby at a pretty decent level when I was back home and I'll never forget when I got dropped. Uh, I played over a year, started every game for my club for a year and I got dropped. And I go to my coach and I go, oi, why am I dropped? And he goes, Smithy, you played terrible. He goes you missed easily six tackles. And he goes, that's me being generous. He goes, your parents were watching. That's the worst I've seen you play. And he goes, if you start training better, you might get your slot back. And I thought to myself, I left. I was like, oh my God. I was like, well, that really hurt. But then the, the biggest disservice he could have said to me was, oh, you know what? It's just a player rotation. And it would have saved my feelings, but it wouldn't have inflicted or it wouldn't influence my future actions. Now, 
it's very easy for a lot of people around the world to go, oh, do you know what? Your coach is a prick. But he's not, because for me and my personality trait, that's exactly what I needed to hear because it was the truth. And it meant that when I turned up to Tuesday for training, I had the right attitude, I was there early, I didn't miss tackles, and, you know, I wasn't pissing about because I wanted my shirt back. And, you know, there's not a coaching style that suits all, but if I was going to be anyone, I wanted to be more of that kind of stern, authoritative, no bullshit, because my coach can go to sleep at night knowing he hasn't fluffed any any bullshit for me to, uh, you know, go away with my ego not bruised, but with the wrong kind of idea of what has actually happened. Yeah, so holding ourselves accountable is very important for success, isn't it? Yeah, otherwise we're just, you know, chasing our tail. Or, you know, people go, oh, you know, I've got bad genetics. Oh, you know, it's this or it's that. And although these are factors that can influence someone's progress, it, it, it detracts people from what they need to do. Yeah, and um, like you said, if you don't take responsibility, you're, you're disempowering yourself because you can't change. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, the, the clients that I've worked with that have got the best results, the ones that sit in front of me and they go, James, I eat too much and I don't do any exercise. And, I, you know, I'm James, I drink too much. I get pissed too much. And I'm like, do you know what? You're my people because you've come in here and you haven't lied to begin with. So, uh, yeah, and and, you're, and if I only service those people, then all the other people, I'm quite happy to go to someone else. There's enough personal trainers in the world. Yeah, fantastic. So how do you find a good PT or somebody to guide you on your fitness journey? Do you know what? I think the most important thing is that you like someone. And uh, a lot of the time, if you like someone, you're going to go see them because you could have the best coach in the world and he could be perfect for your needs. But if you don't like him, you're not going to do what he says or what she says and you're not going to do it. And then... Once you like someone, they have to be able to deliver you closer to the outcome that you desire. And it, it's quite simply that. And, you know, I see, a, I see a chiropractor in the city and I, I don't believe in what he does. But he's funny. He's funny and he makes me feel better. And my lower back, I reckon he's doing some voodoo stuff on me because I see him, I, see, I, put, I pay him way too much money. I don't believe in the practice of being a chiropractor. But he clicks me around, gives me a little rub, kicks me out, and I feel better because of it. <laughs> and, and if someone said to me, should I see a chiropractor? I'm like, yeah, probably not. But I do because this guy, I like him and he, and he helps me with my back pain. And, you know, I think a lot of people, if they see a, a, a PT they like and they want to lose a bit of weight, you know, when I first started, I would see personal trainers with clients walking on a treadmill and I'd be like, you, you bastard. But then there, there's sometimes a, a part of me where I was like, do you know what? If that person wants to come, vent for an hour about how the dog walker is having an affair with the gardener and feel better about themselves and set, and set no, no actual tangible goals and both parties are getting something out of it. Most relationships don't have two happy parties. So, you know, um, I think it is all results-based because if someone can help de-stress their clients or, you know, just be, just be someone in their routine and for that person, just going to the gym might be their, their ultimate goal. And if they're, if they're doing that because of that trainer, then yeah, I think that's, that's the most important thing. Yeah, I think you really even made me aware of my own bias there in, in the sense that, uh, you know, often we uh, perceive life just through our own lens. And, you know, like you said, you've got to meet people where they are sometimes. And for these people, that's, that's what they need, that encouragement, that social support. And just for them walking is a huge achievement in itself. Yeah, and um, I think that I was, I've had to change my biases as we go along because... I used to be like, you know what, breakfast, what an opportunity to get, get food in. And then there was intermittent fasting and I tried it and I lost a bit of weight. And then when I came to Australia, uh, breakfast was my favorite meal of the day. So I started eating it again. And then I started a little campaign of saying, 
you don't need to intermittent fast. Breakfast is fine. And before I knew it, I was anti-intermittent fasting. When I actually do it myself, I became so, so like, you know, invested in telling people they could eat breakfast and lose weight that I became anti-skipping breakfast for absolutely no reason. And, you know, sometimes I sit back and, you know, the, you, you can have your bias, your own lens and what works for you. And, you know, even, even now I go into bed without a big meal, I can't sleep. But for some other people, they hate eating before bed. And we're all so individually different that we do need to sometimes take into account the differences between us. Yeah, as soon as somebody said, this is the best way to train or this is the best diet in the world, you know it's BS because there is no one best fit for everybody. Yeah, exactly that. What would your advice be? Because you are now you know, a real leader in this field with uh, your thoughts around personal training. If you were a personal trainer out there listening, because we have a lot of different people in the medical space listen to us, uh, what would your advice be? I know you touched upon the psychology element of it. Um, you reckon that's more important than just knowing about how to get somebody fit? I think I'm, uh, fortunately and unfortunately, getting someone fit is an adherence and a sustainability thing. And... You know, it's getting someone to do something that works and it's often not that glamorous. It's often repeating the same workout two, three times a week for months on end. And it's often taking the same walk to the gym. If there there were trainers listening, my most important bit of advice would be pick your hours that work for you. Because when I, if I, if I could talk to a personal trainer now, I want him to be a PT in 10 years. There is no way you can train people for 10 years and not get good at the job. And... That's, that's why I think we have so many people that are struggling. Pick your hours and don't... I can't stand people that call the 6 a.m. session a bread and butter and a 5.30 p.m. a bread and butter. It's the busiest time in the flipping gym. And if you've got a client who is paying you a good amount of money for training, you don't want to be queuing for a leg press. Your bread and butter sessions are throughout the day when the gym's empty. And another thing that a lot of personal trainers don't think about is that when you have kids... If you're busiest in the morning and evenings, you are busiest when your kid is at home. And that means less time with your kid, which is another reason that a lot of people quit personal training. We have so many inexperienced people doing it. And marketing a business is, this is gonna sound crass, is very similar to getting laid. So if you're a personal trainer out there, if you're shit at getting laid, you need to have a word with yourself. But what, what kills me is that people, when it comes to getting sex, are the best marketers in the world. They go out, they go to the, the nightclub or the bar. They know exactly what they are thereafter. They understand the process. They go, I'm going to talk to 50 birds. I'm going to get 20 numbers. I'm going to snog 10 and I'm going to text five after the night is there. And when, when you're out on the prowl, you don't always try and sleep with people. And this isn't me being a misogynist. This is me using an analogy. An analogy. When you get their numbers, you get them because not everyone is ready to go home with you at 10.30 p.m. when you're slurring your words. So you get their number and you do later on. But personal trainers cannot apply this to the gym floor where it's like, hey, mate, that's where you're going to find your clients. Go out there, talk to 80 people, you know, swoon 50 of them, ask 30 of them for their numbers and text 15 of them next week to book them in for a consult. But for some reason, that, that is just oblivious to the, the mindset of a, of a personal trainer. And if they continue to text people for consults and they pick their hours, they're going to have a busy uh, business that's going to outlast them so they could be a grey-haired PT that know what they're doing with their clients. Yeah, so fear of failure and fear of rejection is something that's holding back a lot of people, not just in life, but as trainers. Big time. And, and I was very fortunate at an earlier stage in my life to knock on doors for a living, selling gas and electric to people that already had gas and electric. I was quite literally 
trying to move them from their existing supplier to a different one. Even though it comes through the same pipes, it was literally just a different contract. It was like trying to get someone to change their phone line. And uh, my numbers were that I had to knock on 100 doors to speak to 100 people to make one sale. And uh, I was so, you know, I knock on a door and I was just waiting for them to tell me to piss off or to do one. And then if someone eventually did say yes, I was like, wow, you're my one in a hundred. So when I went to the gym floor, it was, it was a big step up and it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot easier. I certainly had a thicker skin. So you had resilience as a result of life experience. Yeah, and, and this is it. And do you know what? That job was shite. And another thing that we have right now is that we, they, we, we avoid re- anything that's going to give us resilience. We avoid anything that's going to bruise our egos. But sometimes it's, you know, like a Kung Fu expert rolling a rolling pin on his shins He's doing it to kill the nerves so his shins are harder so he can kick people. And I'm not saying that people should be kicking people, but we should certainly be striving for resilience and rejection builds us up. And behind the, uh, you know, the people that are best at dating are the ones that are fearless of rejection. And there are no real downsides apart from a bruised ego in a lot of occasions. And someone declining your personal training services, you've at least engaged in that person. And should they ever need help getting a bar off a squat rack, you'll be the person they come to. Well, I love the fact that it's at your new book's titled I'm Not a Life Coach, and um, but you're giving some fantastic life advice here today. What inspired you to write this book? It's almost like a, a precursor to the first one. All the advice had to be fitness. So I was kind of limited with a lot of the writing in itself. I veered off a bit. But with this one, there's, there's kind of uh, a, a lot of, things that I've learned, most of which in the last few years, which I really want to share with people. And you know what, Australia's been amazing for this, where sometimes I sit in a cafe in Sydney and I'll be down by the beach and there'll be three or four youngsters who are working in the cafe, coming over, seeing if I want another coffee. And I look at them and I think, you guys are so happy. You're in here at 6am, you're on Bondi Beach, you get paid probably a decent amount of money compared to other cafes in the world. You clock off at 3pm. You probably go home, take a nap, see your friends, play PlayStation, whatever. And you go down to the grassy knoll on Bondi with a six pack of beers and you watch the sunset and you repeat that life over and over. And it pains me that some of their parents will call them up and say, it's time for you to come home and get a real job. And I'm like, what the hell is a real job? What, to go sit in an office with fluorescent lighting and work in recruitment, making a hundred calls a day to people, trying to compete for a, a position that's gonna be filled. I was like, why do we have this kind of success ladder all wrong when this this 22-year-old in this cafe who's about to serve me another long black with milk has got a better life than most people on the planet, yet we're, we're sat here all looking at them like they, they're some kind of, you know, idiot. And there's so many, uh, you know, and I think Australians are very fortunate because they have the beach and the good weather, that they can have smaller lives. And that's not me taking anything away from Australians. But as far as a work culture and the corporate side of CBD, you don't expect emails out of hours. Where in the UK, where I'm from, you've got the London Underground, you've got this rat race, you've got all of these people working jobs they hate, buying things they don't need, impressing people they don't like, so they can go over to some holiday destination in Europe and spunk it all on partying to then go back to an existence they don't enjoy. And to me, there's this like blueprint in life where... You, you finish education, you either go to uni or you don't. You then have a couple of years to enjoy yourself and then suddenly you're slogging it in a rat race for the rest of your life until you retire and then die. And I, I literally, over the last few years, I've been thinking to myself, there are so many people that don't want to do this, that don't want to buy a mortgage, that would quite happily 
spend their time in a cafe making coffees and there shouldn't be anyone that can tell them different. And there's, there's going to be a lot of people that, that object this and that's fine. And similar in fitness, if I say that the ketogenic diet is shit, 30% of people might disagree, but that's cool. Stick to your damn diet then. But the 70% of people that thought it was the worst thing in the world are going to fall out of that metaphorical tree and do something about it. And like uh, I read a book uh, called The 4-Hour Workweek. Yeah, Tim Ferriss. Yeah, and it's cheesy. It's a cheesy flipping book. But there were some, some bits in it that I hated and some bits in it that I loved. And from reading that book, five weeks later, I went to Australia with a laptop and I've worked online ever since. And if it wasn't for his authoritative words on how the constructs of a real life should be, I wouldn't have changed mine. And I realized that there, there are several books that I've read that have given me this kind of mindset. And my following will not read these books because they're millennials, they're Gen Z, they're on TikTok, and I cannot, I cannot trust them to read these books. So what I've done is I've combined all of the advice I could ever give someone from a marketing perspective, a getting laid perspective, a running a business perspective, uh, how to get rid of your girlfriend perspective, all of these things and put them into a book. And I've actually quoted in a lot of authors who have helped me because I don't trust my following to read the bloody books. And, uh, and I didn't have the title. We actually picked the title about halfway through. And uh, it was kind of nuanced because I was like, well, the first one, I was like, this isn't a flipping diet book. This is an education book. And in the second one, it's also uh, like an educative book. And I was like, I don't want to come across as a life coach. And I was like, bang, that's the title we're going to give it. So tracking back on what you just touched upon there before, um, what is your definition of, of success? I think it's, it's really important that people uh, have values and what they assign weight to. Because what annoys me is that, say you live in Burley Heads and you can afford your mortgage, you have a dog and you have a job you enjoy. If your values surround walking the dog on the beach, enjoying your work, and coming home and having an hour of playing Warzone, Call of Duty, no one can take that away from you. And no one should be able to step into your life and go, you should be working more. You know, you, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. And if that, if that person's value is doing that, that's fine. But unfortunately, a lot of us are inheriting our values from people around us, and even our parents sometimes. Where our parents are, oh, you need to settle down. You're like, no, that's, that's your values, right? I'm 31, I'm nowhere near it, I'm still living with the boys. And you know, if your values are, are set and you think about it, my, my biggest concern is that a lot of people have never really asked themselves what makes them happy. And for instance, I, I compete in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I'm only a blue belt, but to me, the most important thing is that I enjoy it. So if I lose this weekend at a comp, if I win, if I go to training once or go four times, if I have a bad day at training or I don't, that's, that doesn't matter because I've set my values as just enjoying going to training and performing in the sport. If I was to have my values of being the best blue belt in the country or being the best blue belt in the world, I'm going to end up bitterly disappointed. And unfortunately, from a financial and a professional standpoint, and what we're subjected to on social media, we are setting our values very, very high. Every blogger that's putting stuff on YouTube thinks they need to be doing Logan Paul numbers. And now there are a lot of podcast hosts that think they need to be doing Joe Rogan numbers. And they're set, setting their values in the wrong place and feeling very disheartened because of it. So I think, you know, as far as having the, like the good life, it all boils back to values. And some people have very simple values. And I want to be able to give them that kind of feeling that they can just relax. And they go, do you know what? These are the three things that are most important to me in life. And I'm hitting all three of them. And if it's renting a house at 44, and being single, 
but they're happy, then who the, who the hell can tell them that that's, that's not okay? What would they rather be doing? And there's a Bill Burr quote in it where he goes, there's a lot of people that got married to someone they didn't love and popped out kids because they weren't sure what to do. And they're in bed next to their wife dreaming about sleeping on a futon somewhere. So, you know, it's... <laughs> It's one of those things. <laughs> well, that, that's that's there's a concept um, yeah, I've heard once upon a time called rules, bullshit rules, and unfortunately we live by these rules that have been passed down to us by other people, particularly our parents, our friends, our society. That this is how life should be conducted, and um, you know it doesn't really make you happy. You try to buy the bigger house, thinking you know I call it you know the when psychology. You know when I get this, I'll be happy. When this happens, I'll be happy. When I get this. Uh, job, this girlfriend, you know, this holiday, I'll be happy, but people are never happy because they're always grasping for more and, you know, when never happens. So um, I suppose happiness for you then is what? It, it used to be, I used to say to people, like, you know, happiness is doing what you want, when you want, for how much you want. It would be that, but do you know what? At the moment, it, it's being an architect of my life and a lot of people will discredit that, or it's, it's all right for you. But even if you're married, even if you've got kids, you still are the architect of the exact constructs of your life. And you can live in someone else's home, but you can also have the opportunity to, to build your own when it comes to your life. And for me, where I work, where I spend my days, what time of the day I train, what time of the day I work, it's, it all fits into the construct that I've created. And although that changes year on year, it brings me a lot of happiness. And uh, I'm living the life that I want to live. And people say, oh, what would you change in your life? And I'm like, well, I wouldn't change anything because if I wanted to, I would have already done it by now. I wouldn't be turning up every day and living a life I didn't want to live. And people are like, oh, never really thought of it like that. Or they go, oh, what's your biggest regret? And I'm like, well, why do we have these stupid questions? Because if I, if I truly regretted something, it would have a hindrance to where I am now. And, and again, all of the things that have gone wrong in our life are the stepping stones to where we are now. And to me, to be happy is to appreciate everything that's gone wrong, to appreciate everything that's going to go wrong, and to just appreciate that every part of my life that I live right now is on my terms and it's how I want it to be. And even if something really fucking bad happens tomorrow, it's still a part of my construct that I've created, so I've just got to deal with it. I really love the movie Just In Time with Justin Timberlake, and it essentially just shows you know everything we do in life, we're sacrificing not just money but time. People don't appreciate time, do they? There's a, there's a film, this is homework for you, right? It's called About Time, and it's an English film. And it's, I can't give too much away for any listeners. It's on, Net, it's on Netflix. And it's got a very salient kind of meaning to it, uh, similarly to that one, which really makes you appreciate time as well. And it was, a, it was a big chapter in the book where, you know, people, I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of this, where... We, we have these, these dream states ahead of us right, where my when is about getting a dog. And every time I think about it, I'm like, oh, I really want to have a dog. And I've had one before in my life. And then my, another part of my mind goes, ah, oh, it's going to be quite a lot of work. Maybe you should do it when you're a bit older. But everything, everything that I could do older, I could do right now. And everyone can do this as well. People go, ah, oh, you know, I'll probably have kids in a few years. You're like, well, if you're thinking that, just do it now. And it, it's exactly that. And Sometimes, you know, you, like you say, if you, if you only knew you had a year to live, would you get a dog? I'd be like, yeah, I'd get a fucking dog. I'd have the best year ever with it. And, and then why does it, why does it take me having to die next year to get a flipping dog? There's, and, and even some days I think to myself, if I go to a rescue kennel, 
surely me being a, a, a useless adult who can't even manage his own diary, people go, James, you can't look after yourself. How do you look after a dog? I'm like, it's in a kennel right now. It's in, it's in a cage. You know, as long as it doesn't die on me, I've literally given it a better life. And um, you know, my manager will listen back to this and be going, oh, James, don't get a flipping dog. The Health Hacker with Adam McDougall. What do you hope people get out of this book? There's going to be a lot of metaphorical trees that are going to be shaken. So some people will clutch hold and think that I'm wrong and that's fine. But for a lot of people, it will just be um, kind of like a a new lease on their their future life. And it's weird, the first book, if someone was to take the first book and not a diet book and read everything and put it into applications, they would end up looking a bit different a year from now. Maybe a bit more muscle, maybe a bit less fat, maybe a bit healthier, maybe a bit more colour in the face. Uh, maybe even a bit more, you know, maybe the vitamin D that they supplemented or whatever. But the interesting thing about the second book is that a year from now, someone could look exactly the same. But the way they deal with problems, the way they see the world, the way they see their world and the way they feel about their world could be completely different. They might have the same haircut, the same iPhone, live in the same house, drive the same car, go to the same job, but they might feel completely different about it. And I think that's the powerful part where... If there was that person in Burley Heads with the dog on the beach, with the job that they only work in five hours a day, they might read the book and go, fuck, my worries about not doing enough are completely gone because I'm well in tune in my values. Uh, and, and I think that is really, you know, to give peace of mind to a lot of people that are living the life they want and to give a call of action to a lot of people that aren't living the life they want. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the reality is depression, they say, is going to peak next year. About halfway through the year as a result of COVID, um, you know, mental health is on, is on the rise, um, unfortunately. I think social media is playing a big part in this. How do you navigate your way through social media? What were some tips that you can pass on? I can't accept criticisms from people I wouldn't go to for advice. And uh, I saw a tweet that Christian Bell did where he goes, he goes, if you have a problem, call me. And he goes, if you haven't got my number, then you're not important enough for me to give a fuck. You know what I mean? Like, and I was like, I was like, that's brilliant. Uh, and social media is mad. And, you know, for me, there's, uh, I put in the latter book, in Australia, the biggest killer of men below 40 or 41 is suicide. And I was like, well, considering that most people get into work at 20 or 18, and most people retire at 65, two thirds of that existence of people in this go to work before you retire are prematurely killing themselves before retirement. So there's obviously something wrong with this construct we call professional life or life in itself. And I think that a lot of people are, you know, setting, they're certainly getting values from social media, which are wrong. But if you're you're living a life where your relationships aren't doing much for you, your professional life isn't doing much for you, it doesn't take much. And, and, you know, if if you're resting everything on just money and then COVID comes and it fucks several of your businesses then I'm not surprised you're feeling hopeless and you're feeling depressed. And it is is a very worrying time. And I think that's why we need to prioritise doing what makes you happy because you can do what makes you happy and you can do the right thing by the blueprint to life. And unfortunately, there are probably a lot of people that did the right thing and have been completely screwed over with literally one one viral disease that spread around the world. Whereas, you know, a lot of people that probably went travelling last year or the year before or that, you know, did everything off a whim, they're the ones that sat there going, God, thank God I did that. And it's it's quite, it, anything can go wrong around the corner. And I think that, you know, life is too short to not be doing what you want. 
And if people want to protect themselves from developing mental health disorders and uh, you know, suicidal thoughts, it's imperative that they are selfish and they do what they want in life and not try and please other people around them. Because the similar to being on an airplane, it's very important you put the oxygen mask on yourself before helping other people. Now, that brings me back to full circle. Obviously, you're, you're a great experience in health um, and fitness. The importance of health and fitness for mental health, it, it's, it's undeniable, isn't it? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, uh, for a start, control is a big, big thing. People need to be in control of a lot of variables in their life. I think that when someone breaks up with them or if they lose their job, they lose control of a very important you know, variable, which is, you know, they, they have that taken away from them and they do feel very powerless. Now our fitness, our health and all of these, for most people, it's completely in their control. And I think that, you know, being in shape, it's almost meditative going for a walk, going to the gym, doing exercise. It's one of the reasons that I was very uh, anti-gyms being locked down because the gym isn't just a place for people where there's weights. It is a place to escape their life for an hour, to listen to a podcast with mad music or, you know, whatever they want to do. And they can be someone else for an hour and then they can come back to their normal life. And people going for walks, doing coastals, uh, all of these things. It's where people pay in to their own mental health and they support it. Getting sunlight, getting their heart rate up, being able to sit on the sofa at the end of the day and feel productive. All of these things are incredibly important. And self-esteem, you know, all of these, and people don't need to be chiseled, but they just need to be looking after themselves. Because if you're not looking after yourself from a physical standpoint, it's quite obvious that you're probably not looking after yourself from a mental standpoint. And I think it is imperative that there is a bit more support for people. And that's another reason why I've written a book about happiness, because if I have someone unhappy who's obese and they hate the relationship they're in and hate their job, me telling them to go to the fridge less, it's going to make their life worse, not better. You know, like, oh, you know, oh, just eat less, mate. Oh, brilliant. There was only three things making fat Bob happy, and that was the three cheeseburgers the other day. Now he's had, he's had them taken away. What's Bob got left? You know, and it's why we do need to be empathetic uh, and, you know, say to people that if, you, if you're looking to improve mental health, health and exercise is a, a fantastic contributor. It's not the be-all and end-all, because there are a lot of people with six-packs that still kill themselves, and there are still a lot of people with a lot of money that, that kill themselves. But yeah, it is definitely something that people do need to be paying attention to. And to navigate your fitness journey more successfully, do you want to dive into um, your measuring device or your, your tool, I suppose, which is called the dog test? Can you tell people what that is from your first book? Uh, yeah, so if your dog was to get really fat, you wouldn't be drawing any conclusions to it. You wouldn't go, Dad, I think, you know, that, I think a dog's got a genetic disorder. I think, you know, I think, I think we're going to put that dog on a ketogenic diet or, you know, I think we're going to get... We go on ketones, exogenous ketones, Dad. We're going to get the dog on ketones. It'd be very apparent, you know, even your grandparents would say, ah, oh, stop feeding him so much and take him for more walks. And it's the exact same, you know, people go, oh, but James, we're not dogs. And I'm like, oh, no shit. But it, it's very important that we say to people, like, look, it, it's simple for the dog. It shouldn't be too simple for everyone else. And, you know, the dog's not making up excuses. And the, and the dog likes to exercise. It's his favourite part of the day. So we can learn a lot from fat dogs. And, and, and here's a, an interesting point as well, that people seem to think that the set point theory and there's genetics that play in all of this, but the rates of canine obesity are on the rise with humans. So if it was like a human genetic thing, dogs would not be getting fat with us. It's the fact that equally dogs and people are doing less exercise. That dog might have got a walk to the fish and chip shop before Uber Eats existed. So it's, uh, it, yeah, it's definitely one of those things where people do need to take a step back and simplify things. 
Yeah, I like the fact that you said, you know, if you, you wouldn't uh, get your dog to eat it or do it as a diet or a exercise regime, why would you do it yourself? Exactly. You wouldn't be putting a skinny jab in your dog. <laughs> what, what are some of the things, because this is what I love about speaking to you today, your honesty, what are some of the things that really, I suppose, for want of a better word, piss you off most about um, some of the fads that are out there? I, I, I must admit, I like the fact that you hate skinny tea as much as I do. Are there any ones in particular at the moment? Like, I suppose veganism is one that um, is interesting, isn't it? We've, we've got this, there's this very strange group of people as part, part of the millennials, I think they are, and they have to be attached to something. Now, a couple hundred years ago, I reckon they would have been in with religion. You know, like the, the Mormons start doing their thing. They're like, we're Mormons. And now they, they need something to attach to. So we've seen this very recently with Black Lives Matters. You know, we've seen a lot of white people getting very, very angry about racial inequality. And you're like, okay, it, it's interesting that we're getting more, more white people in some places than you would others. And with veganism, we've seen this. And the, the, the core of vegans are great people. They are people that go, do you know what? Uh, I'm going to not eat any animal products because I love animals. And that in itself is great because... A lot of them looking a bit pale, looking a bit weak. You can spot a vegan these days. And it's not saying they're all weak, but the majority of them. That we had a lady that went to Mount Everest to prove they could do everything and she died at the top. So like it, as far as diet as far as dietary advice, I wouldn't be recommending it. No, no, yeah, like it's, it's ironic, so we can laugh. And so um you know, and it's it's almost like someone saying, ah, oh, you know, I'm I'm gonna give up something so that the world can be a better place, and that's admirable. But a lot of them people jumped onto the bandwagon, self-righteous lot, the ones that go, oh my God, I can't believe you're eating, you know, flesh in public. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no Christians have ever walked up to like, you, you know, in modern days, you wouldn't see Christians going up to another group of religious people going, oh my God, I can't believe you're praying on a mat. That's, to, you know, you're like, guys, you have your own beliefs, stay to yourself. And we saw this as well with feminists. Feminism is a fantastic cause. But now you have the women that crop up on my post going, what do you know? You're a man. And I'm like, well, I've read the same studies as women have read. I'm just here trying to portray some information about female physiology. And suddenly I can't because I'm a man. And there are always these extremists in every camp that kind of ruin it for everyone. And we see it with fasting as well. Like fasting is the cure. And then before you read, you get into a few Twitter threads. They're like, well, it's anti-aging. It stops you getting cancer. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. There is no evidence to back up these claims. You, it's like Chinese whispers. You can't say that anymore. That's racist. But yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, well, where's, where will these claims come and all these purported benefits? And it, it's kind of annoying that so many things are getting so much weight without context. And people go, but surely, James, fasting is amazing. And I'm like, unless you want to build muscle. And people go, ah, you know. And if I can answer a question with, for what, then it's not an easy question to answer. Yeah, it's such a great approach. And that's the way I look at it. For what, you know, are you actually saying this thing is effective for? Because like you said, you know, the human body is, is you know, one one system. It's not subsystems. And that's where people make mistakes. They look at something and go, oh, well, this study said that, um, you, know, you know, you lost weight because you took this particular food. But was it correlation or was it causation? You know, look at the, the substance of the study. Most dietary uh, studies are observational. Then we know that people lie to themselves more often than not and our memories are very poor. So going to somebody and saying, you know, did you eat meat how many times a week five years ago? And saying now red meat is bad. It's just, um, yeah, bad science, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. The the red meat is one is, is interesting where if you look at unhealthy people, they do eat more red meat. And the reason being is, 
they consume more bacon, more burgers, more Indian takeaways, more, you know, all of these things. And health-seeking individuals probably do more yoga, uh, but then at the same time, they probably have more fish, more salads, more lean meats, and all of these kind of, you know, healthier food choices. They might even have some days where they have alternatives. But just because, you know, putting people in this category of eating more red meat, it's not the cause. It's probably the fact they're not health-seeking. And again, we saw this a lot with breakfast. People who skip breakfast are typically less healthy. But it's because these people are probably up till 3am playing World of Warcraft, getting up late for work, rushing out the door. They're underslept, underprepared, still got bed hair, going to work, eating a sandwich. And like, it's non-health-seeking people, people that don't really give a shit about their health, are not the ones getting up and preparing food before they go for work. But we can't then say that breakfast is bad because of that. And yeah, it's crazy. So can we take a dive into to what your philosophy, personal philosophy is with your, your training? Let's start with that. How do you exercise that you mentioned before you try to find things that you enjoy, such as jujitsu? Um, is that your approach? It's, uh, so for me, the number one principle is that when, whenever I eat, I always want to make the best choices possible. And that doesn't mean I, I don't get takeaway. If I have a McDonald's, I'll still have a Coke Zero. I still only stick to the fries and I'll have like a cheeseburger. And I've come to realize I take just as much pleasure, pleasure from a cheeseburger as a double cheeseburger or a Big Mac. So to me, I can, I can just enjoy it. But the calories are always in my mind, although they're not always tracked. And sometimes like when I go out, when I go buy stuff, I often think to myself, how hungry am I? I might want three sushi rolls, but I eat two. Uh, so I definitely eat on the move, but I have a general idea of how much I should be eating each day. Now this sometimes gets carried away, this sometimes doesn't. But when I need to rein it in, I use calorie tracking. And calorie tracking is not an exact science, but for me, it's habitual where I go to the sushi place next to where I go to Woolworths and I look at my phone for a split second, 10 seconds, and I'm like, just one sushi bowl because I had eggs on sourdough for breakfast. And that habitual change, that peace of mind that I get reduces a bit of calories from here because I know I've got dinner. So calorie tracking to me is a, is a great tool for going to the fridge and shutting the door again. It's not that, you know, I'm counting the you know, biomolecular energy from a fucking, you know, barometer or anything like that. So that, that's kind of the underlying principle. So whether or not I'm getting leaner or I'm relaxed, that's the first thing I do. That's almost my big, big time. I'm making weight for a jiu-jitsu competition uh, this weekend and I'm doing a weight class below where I'm usually at, which I would not recommend ever again. Um, and it's just having peace of mind that I know right now, I've got another thousand calories and it's just in my mind. I'm like, it's midday. I probably won't eat till three. I have something small and I go through the evening. So that's, that's the underlying principle. That's how I control how, how much fat I have on me. And once I've finished this comp, I'm going to put it back on and I'm going to enjoy it. And you know, when summer comes round and there's a heat wave, I'll dial it back again. But as far as training, uh, two times a week, at least I try, I just like going to the gym. I actually don't follow a program. I do a uh, push, pull and some legs. And I do whatever's available. I don't want to push anyone off a machine. I might go thinking I'm using squats. Someone's in the rack. Do you know what? I'll do some Romanian deadlifts. And for me, that's just to keep my joints healthy, my muscles active. And about four times a week, I train Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And it's probably the best discovery I've had in my later life was performing jiu-jitsu. And 
Have you ever tried it yourself? Oh, well, as a professional rugby league player, we did it for 20 plus years. So, yeah. So. Oh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, like, uh, I, wish, I wish I'd got into it when I was still playing rugby. But it's more, it's mental chess. Yeah. And, and it's a really good site. It's a really good place for humility. I know a lot of people like a higher power, they like religion, they like, you know, spirituality. But to turn up to any gym in the world and have someone 20 kilograms lighter than you kick your ass, it's a very humbling thing. Sometimes women, I've had my ass kicked by women that are much smaller than me. And it's kind of really humbling in that respect that you're like, you know, you're never at the top of your game. And I think that for me, even if I was to get a black belt in the next 10 years, there are going to be better black belts. And there's never a thought in my mind that I will be the best in, in that. And I think when you take that to other areas of your life, that you need to turn up each day. You need to do the small things. You need to park your ego and go to the fundamentals classes, even though you've been training three years, all of these things. And it, that to me, is my favorite thing. And although you get to choke some people unconscious now and then, uh, it is such a great place to put passion into and to put time and it is great exercise. Yeah, there's some great tips there, isn't there? So find something you're passionate about doing, something that challenges you. And diet-wise, you know, have something that holds you accountable and brings awareness, you know, rather than focusing on exclusion, which is the one constant that all diets seem to have that trend, aren't they? They have this exclusionary uh, theme to them. Like, you can't have this, you can't, you know, drink this, you can't do this. It's a real problem, isn't it? Because as soon as you take something away from people, they want it even more. Yeah, and I think that uh, a lot of the time, people are always pushing their thing onto someone. And I'll openly say, I haven't squatted in over three months because quite frankly, I don't need much quad strength at the moment because I spend most of my time on the floor trying to choke people out. And someone made a comment on my legs, they're, oh, you've been skipping leg day. I was like, yeah, I have. Thanks for noticing. Thanks for noticing. And guess what? You can't tell me how I should look or perform for my sport. And you can't tell me how my diet should look. And, and it's, we need to sometimes stand up to people and say, look, this is how I'm doing it. And like you say, everyone says, oh, you can't do that. Well, I can. Watch me do it. That's fantastic. Love it. I touched upon the importance of um, using something to create awareness around diet. Calorie counting is what works for you. Have you got an app that you use for that? So uh, I've, I use my fitness pal. And although I have my, my own fitness app, uh, I still send people to that because I can't do a better job than they can. And Under Armour bought it. And what's great is any listener can ignore anything I say and just download the app. And uh, they can then just log the amount of food they're having. And even if someone has no idea about what they burn on a daily basis or how much they should be eating, they can just make a record of it. And then say they're consuming 14,000 calories a week. They can just reduce 10% and see what happens. And... It's a great way for people as well. You know that we all do this when we get paid. We spend nothing during the week and then we spunk it all at weekends. And we make it balance out. And as long as we balance it out, that's fine. And a lot of people go, yeah, James, I, uh, I barely eat that much. I'm like, not till the weekend, you don't. I say, log, log one weekend for me. And they go, they come in, they go, Jesus. And, you know, and without context, again, someone could go, a thousand calories is not enough food. It's fine for you with the weekends you're having, mate. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's a very good tool for people to use. It's free, accessible to everyone, and it can give them a good insight as to what they're having. And I say this to people all the time, you don't need to be a genius because if nothing happens, you're not in a calorie deficit. If you're starving all the time, you're probably too far into a calorie deficit. And if you're very slowly losing weight and feel all right, well done. From your experience, what, what, what's your best tips around weight loss in particular? I'm going to give you several. Okay, number one is to pick an amount of calories you think is going to work, but that is an amount that can change and it's subjective between every single person. Two, 
to try and hit two grams of protein per kilogram. And that's lean mass. So even if you're, yeah, even if you're only carrying a few pounds, like that, that protein there, I go to the butchers down the road in uh, Bondi Beach and they do cooked chicken breasts and they have these large Tupperware containers and I say, fit as many as you can in that Tupperware. And there, there's a few lads there. I'm like, lads, as much as you want, I'll pay anything. You get as much because you pay by the kilogram. And I take them home and I weigh them up and I have in there the amount of chicken breasts I need to consume for the day. And this is when I'm really looking to cut weight. And sometimes they're, oh, I could have an ice cream. Oh, I could have this. And I look in the fridge, I go, I haven't finished them chicken breasts yet. And sometimes I'll be walking around the house and this is a very fitness thing to do. I'll be eating a chicken breast on a fork. And when I finished, by, by the time I finished it, I think, yeah, I'll have something sweet, but I've not got much room left. And people go, oh, I'm, I'm dealing with hunger. I go, deal with your protein target and the rest will take after itself. And protein is a, is a big accelerator in fat loss and it is a contributor to filling people up. So that's, that's number two. And number... Number three is, is just to, to walk more and to stay accountable to a step count. And I'm low calorie at the moment. So I'm grumpy. I'm a bit of an asshole, if I'm honest. But even I live up in Bondi Junction, getting down to the beach, I say to myself, James, walk to the beach. If you're knackered, get the bus back, but at least walk down there. Like, don't be, don't be lazy. If you don't want to walk up a hill because you're dieting, that's fine. But walk there and do your steps and put your headphones in. And, uh, you know, even if I'm running late for something, I'll walk as far as I can and then I'll get an Uber halfway there just so I can get the step count up. And I keep an eye on that because it just incentivizes you to move more and, and it's that that makes a big difference. So the calories, the protein, the step count. Once you hit those, that will work. If you want to do a workout on top, yeah, go to the fucking gym, but do what you want to do. And if you miss the gym, don't hold everything as balancing on you going to the gym. It should be icing on your cake. And some cakes look nice without icing. And some cakes don't. And it is literally up to the person that's eating it. That's great advice. Great advice. Practical, sustainable. That's that's the key to anything to do with success in life. Habits. You, you spoke about habits earlier. How important are habits for people and how do they develop them? Yeah, it's, it, and do you know what? It's, it's quite a boring habitual story to, to talk about, but I have a pretty big email list and a lot of book sales, a lot of promotions, everything I do through this list. And I've, I write emails to this list every day and they're about everything. Dates gone bad. Uh, you know, one time I spoke about a really funny story when I prematurely ejaculated. I threw it into an email. A, a, la- a laundry bill that was, uh, I got a 500 US dollar laundry bill in LA and I laughed and I thought, this is going to make a great email. So I send this every day. But I tell people, uh, I'd st- I was in a course and in the course they said, you need to do email marketing. Every business has it. So I was like, okay. So I started writing them and it took me 10 months of writing them every day before I made a sale. And 10 months of doing something without reward for a lot of people seems mental. But then again, I posted on social media for three years before I took on a client from it. So it was very important that people understand that a lot of kicking happens under the surface before you make one sale. And even when I made that first sale, it was like $40. So I've done 10 months of work for $40, but it's only the trajectory of habits that you should be concerned about. And James Clear is a fantastic author about this, where I knew when I started... Yeah, fantastic book. And I was well aware before James Clear had even written that book that if I carried on doing what I was doing, the trajectory would send me to have a very large email list. And with people, when it comes to calorie tracking, sometimes I say to them, you might be doing this for two months before you lose weight, but don't make it about tracking calories to lose weight. Make it about tracking calories to be in charge of, you know, managing that amount. And over time, it becomes a part of your habit. And when you go out for dinner, and there are days, even when you're on the strictest regimes where you just go, ah, 
I'll start again tomorrow. I'm, I've saved myself a thousand calories. I'm going out for a pizza. Sweet, go enjoy yourself. And it's the habits that are formed because the next day when they wake up thinking, cool, that was a great pizza, they're back onto the logging. And it becomes a part of your identity, really, whether it's, you know, taking the bus, walking more or whatever. You're paying into an identity with habits more so anything else. You said earlier you were annoyed that you wasted so much time on your fitness journey. What were the things that you wasted your time doing and what would you do differently? Bro split. I used to train a body. I used to train shoulders for an hour. <laughs> shoulders for an hour. I can get shoulders done in about seven minutes now. And um, so, yeah, I used to, my split was a bit rubbish. Supplements. I was taking carnitine, glutamine. I was taking all this rubbish, didn't do anything. I had the, I had the drawer. You open the drawer in the office that's full of useless supplements. That was me. Um, you know, I used to, uh, there are even times where I took anabolic steroids, right? When I was, when I was first becoming a PT, I thought it would be what I needed to take myself seriously. I wasn't even hitting anywhere near the amount of protein I should be eating for building muscle without steroids, let alone with it. And, you know, I wasted so much time and effort. I was, I was injecting testosterone into my butt cheek to build muscles when really I needed to train smart and eat enough food. You know, can, I, I missed ABC. I was already at XYZ. And it, it not only wasted time, I endangered myself. I'm not, you know, I YouTubed how to inject myself with testosterone. And it's crazy that, you know, I was going to these extremes because I just didn't have a basic understanding. So getting the fundamentals right, the 80-20 rule is focusing on the things that uh, are going to give you the biggest bang for your buck or the big rock theory that I speak about, um, you know, finding the biggest rocks, trying to fill that glass up with them. Like you touched upon then, food, movement, psychology are the keys to a happy and healthy life. You spoke about it in the book as well. People aren't going to have a complete life unless they focus on these things like sleep. Can you expand on the importance of sleep and relationships and just getting them things right? That will contribute to your waistline as well, won't they? Yeah, 100%. I think that, you know, uh, you have these fundamentals that are so important and can't be overlooked. And, you know, for me, if I know that when I'm jet lagged, I can't eat well because I know I can't sleep well. I need, I know, I can't have the top of the pyramid serving me justice if the bottom part is rubbish. And sleep is almost like the nucleus to everything where I need to really focus on my sleep, be selfish with it. Uh, I've dated girls before where they're like night owls and I'm a morning person. And like 10 at night, they'll be like, James, what do you... And I'll be like, whoa, 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 whoa. We can't be doing this. No, no, no. I need, I need, I need my sleep. And even at the moment, I think I get about eight or nine hours a night and it's a non-negotiable. And... It, it makes a big difference in, in a deficit, what is going to be lost as lean mass or fat mass. And uh, sleep is a really important part of that. Uh, again, little things like sunlight, uh, you know, nutrition to a basic level, like getting protein, vegetables in, things like that. All of these things are contributors. And, you know, I, I think that it's important that we do give some the weight of essential, like sleep and hydration and things like that. And then we look to the rest as contributors. And people should only really try their best. And I've always said that we all live on a scale or a spectrum of optimal and suboptimal. And we want to stay away from suboptimal as much as we can and just edge as far as we can towards optimal. But we don't want it to be perfect. Because if you sleep nine hours every night, you're not going out on the piss with the boys once in a while. If you get your nutrition great all the time, you're not having a pizza once in a while. You know, it's about getting as far as we can with having good life quality and getting the best out of both worlds. Because having a few, sinking a few too many beers when the rugby's on and going on holiday and, you know, periodically like Christmas, putting on a bit of weight. That's, that's the fun part of life. And it's about just ensuring that with every practice we have, whether it's 
tracking, sleeping, walking, training, that we are as far on that optimal scale as we can as we can get. Great advice. I deal with a lot of different shapes and sizes and obviously people can't train the way that I trained as a professional athlete. Are there certain uh, recommendations you have around training for different body types? So there's a, a, a fallacy with somatotypes, which is endomorph, ectomorph and mesomorph, which a lot of online uh, gurus will prey on where they'll say, you know, are you training right for your body type? Oh my God, I can't believe you're eating carrot if you're an endomorph. And people are like, oh my God, I do eat carrot. What am I doing wrong? Sign up to my free quiz. And so people are misled by that. But we, we always do need to take into account that there are genetical differences between us. There is no diet perfect for someone's genetic or blood type or anything like that. <laughs> blood type, oh, eat more of these foods. And you're like, I, I don't even know my blood type. Uh, but no, there are, there are some people that respond to different things. And a lot of the times people's sports pick them. There are people that don't respond very well to weight training and they end up being runners. And there are some people that, you know, are very good with endurance. They become crossfitters. And, you know, whether it's your muscle twitch fibers or your however prone you are to injury or anything like that, there's going to be a different type of training that people enjoy and they succeed at. Me, I, I was a union player, so don't frown too much about that. But I'm also incredibly slow. I could run for 80 minutes, but if I made a line break, which obviously didn't happen that much either, everyone would be like, get the ball off of Smithy. It looked like I was running in slow motion. And um, a typical back row forward just with no speed. And it was great when I got into jiu-jitsu because there's no requirement for speed on your feet. And, you know, my, my inability to be uh, agile is fantastic now. So I'm very glad that I've changed codes to something where I'm not showing up quite so much. Well, James, I must admit that uh, you've made me laugh today, which is to me the biggest gift in life that you can get when someone makes you laugh. So thank you for that, mate. It's been a great chat. And uh, if you haven't grabbed his books, make sure that you do. And uh, you want the honest truth? Well, this is the man that will give it to you. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that's the episode, and we hope you learnt heaps. We know we did. So if you want us to hack into someone in particular for you, let us know. Leave us a comment on the app wherever you're listening to this podcast. Email us directly, healthhackeratthemanshape.com.au or jump onto Adam's socials or on his website, themanshape.com.au. And we'll do our best to get that person on the podcast. Health Hacker was created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Written and presented by Adam McDougall. Produced and presented by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. To listen to more episodes, search Health Hacker Podcast. Listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.